All right. So I, uh, I lied last week because I had told you that Hell Week was last week, and then I promised it was this week, and it is actually. We made it. We made it to Hell Week. So um, I don't know if well, there's a lot of you here this morning, which is great. I don't know if that's an accident or because you actually came for Hell Week or this is your first time here and you're going, really? We're going to open with Hell? Yep. Sorry. Welcome to Harbor Life. It's your first time here. Um, <laughs> Uh, but we're gonna, we're, what we've been doing is that we've been working through the book of Matthew for the past year. Uh, and we've made it to the section of Matthew now in which, which, which Jesus is talking about, uh, about the end times. He's talking about uh, heaven and hell, this week hell, next week heaven. Um, and, and we wanted to make sure that as we worked through the book of Matthew, we didn't skip the hard things. And this is one of those spaces where we're going to deal with some of the hard things. Now, I, last week I went long in my preamble, and I don't want to do that again. I'm going to keep it as tight as I can, but there are a few things I want to say before we get started. Um, first, uh, uh, <clears throat> there is so much information around hell. There was, I literally could have written a six-hour long sermon. I think that I have at least three hours of material that we could talk about in the cutting room floor tonight. Um, I did my best to keep things concise, um, but, there, but there's a lot more that we won't touch on. So uh, if you didn't see it on the slides earlier tonight at 6.45, um, we'll have something called the cutting room floor, which is the stuff that we had to cut and hit the cutting room floor. Uh, and we'll be able to have a discussion around all of the questions you might have left around uh, the topic of hell. Now, I wanted to bring that up because I suspect there's going to be some of you who will be a little disappointed this morning. Um, because I don't address a detail that you might have been really interested in. Uh, and that, that detail is specifically um, around, well, whenever we talk about hell, inevitably people begin to wonder about judgment, and particularly final judgment or eternal judgment. Uh, we're going to touch on that today because we can't not entirely, but we'll, we won't focus on it uh, directly uh, for this particular message. Uh, that will be the opening topic for Cutting Room Floor tonight, though. So if that's something that you wanted to talk about, come back tonight at 6.45 and we'll discuss that. I actually think that works a lot better in discussion format anyway, um, so hopefully we'll see you there. Uh, one thing I will say about eternal judgment, though, just this morning, because I think it's really, really important, is that often when we talk about things like heaven or hell, uh, we, 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 we wanted to figure out where people are going and we think it's our responsibility to deal with that. Um, I want to just let, just be, the only thing I want to say about it is that the Bible is really, really clear that it's not our responsibility to determine final judgment on anyone, um, which is good, because I don't want that, uh, that kind of pressure. Um, actually, one of my favorite passages that kind of express this, expresses this is in the book of Jude, um, which we don't read Jude often, but there's a line in the book of Jude, it's right here. Uh, it says, but even the archangel Michael, now the archangel Michael, if you don't know, is like the head of the angels in heaven. Uh, the, even if the, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So what we have in this particular image is we have Michael, the highest non-God being that exists, right? And we have the devil, who's the devil. Uh, and Michael won't condemn the devil. So if the person you're talking with, if you are not as holy as Michael, which you're not, and the person you're talking with is not as evil as the devil, which they aren't, you're out of line, then condemning them for eternity, right? So we'll just put that out there. So let's just not do that, fair? All right. And the final thing I want to say, and I actually had lunch with somebody this past week. It was Andy. Uh, and he told me that I don't need to keep doing this, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, this week, like we, like we mentioned, we're tackling an incredibly difficult topic in a relatively short period of time. 
so with that being said, if there are parts that frustrate you or parts that miss or parts that you don't understand, uh, this is where, uh, let's go grab coffee and talk about it. Um, I, I, I'm going to do my best to not be confusing in that way, uh, but it might happen. So if you have other real questions, instead of just be angry about it, which you might, maybe it would make you angry, but I'm happy to talk about it and clarify it, and hopefully we can find resolution that way. So just really encourage you this week, if something is confusing or frustrating or anger-inspiring, let's have a conversation about it. Cool? Let's talk about hell. I actually really wanted to, and if I could have made it work, great. I would have just had ACDC start playing behind me right now. Right, a little highway to hell, that great uh, like, um, <laughs> guitar riff to kick us off, but it wouldn't have worked out well. <laughs> so like last week, um, hell is one of those things that's a favorite in our pop culture spaces. So last week we talked about end times and we saw, we saw how movies paint the end times pictures. Uh, and hell is a big part of those pictures. Now there are a ton of images uh, of, of hell when we think about it. And they tend to follow, fall somewhere on a spectrum. Right? There are images of hell um, that, uh, that are absolutely terrifying. Right? They're filled with demons and fire and pitchforks. Similar to this first picture, Reese, if you could throw that up. Uh, and blood and all of that kind of stuff. Like there are pictures of hell are in this space. Like they're meant to be terrifying to actually like literally scare the hell out of us, right? Like this, this, they get to move us away from that space. And so that, that's one part of the spectrum is when we have these images of hell of this molten, fiery place filled with demons and all of this kind of stuff. Now that one actually is probably more helpful than the other side of the spectrum. Uh, but we can either go that way or... What we, what we end up seeing is that hell becomes, becomes kind of a joke or a caricature, like this next picture here. Um, whoops, not the top one. That was supposed to be a different one. We had some, some trouble with my, my images. That was actually going to be a picture of South Park's hell, right? I don't recommend the show necessarily, but if you can picture that in your head, it makes a big joke out of it, right? Uh, uh, or we have the movie Little Nicky with Adam Sandler where he's actually the son of Satan, right? Or you have this idea where we, we even we, we take the same idea onto sin, right? Like something can be sinfully delicious and that actually means it's good uh, or, or like so decadent that, uh, that it's something that we want, right? We, we either go to this incredibly terrifying image of hell or this kind of caricature, silly version of hell. Um, but where do all of these images come from? Because honestly, most of our images of hell are not from the Bible. They're just not. If you can find me a passage where Satan is a goat man, right, where he has horns and a pitchfork and is red, I'd love to see that passage. Uh, because it's not there. That's not the image of even the devil that we get from Scripture. Actually, if you want to know where the devil came from, uh, this picture is a picture of the god Pan. Uh, we talked about him when we were talking about Caesarea Philippi earlier this year. Um, you notice a few characteristics about Pan that if we were just to give him a pitchfork instead of a flute, if we were to make him red and add some bat wings to him, who do we have now? We have the devil, right? Our images of the devil are actually based on Pan. In the early church, when they were trying to picture something that, that could represent the badness of the devil, they looked at Caesarea Philippi in particular and saw the Pan worship and realized, now that is what the devil is like, so we will make the devil look like Pan. And so they did. That's where that comes from. See, much of our popular imagery on hell comes from two sources. One is, is, is a book, or a, is a 
pamphlet book known as Dante's Inferno. Maybe you've heard about that. Dante's writings are a lot longer. One section of his writings is called The Inferno. Uh, It's this idea of the seven layers of hell. Maybe you've heard about that before. That's where your imagery of fire and demons and pitchforks, all of that comes from that. Um, The other is actually from this book, Paradise Lost. Um, This is one of my favorite books. Actually, it's really hard to read. It's one of my favorite, like, actual books. Like, the physical thing is my favorite um, because it's got pictures in it and it's old, and so it feels important. Um, (laughs) uh, But John Milton wrote a a book called Paradise Lost, too, in which we get this imagery of of the devil and his interaction in hell and all of those things that comes from these places. Now, neither of those things are actually Scripture. And so what we're going to end up doing then this morning is we're going to break some of the images that we might have had in our head around hell. Um, Hopefully you're okay with that. If not, sorry, that's where we're headed anyway. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what does the Bible actually have to say about hell? And we're going to start with that by continuing in where we were in Matthew. So we're going to start in Matthew 25 today, starting at verse 31. It's just this long explanation that Jesus has been giving about the end times, about about heaven next week, hell this week, about how all of these things work. Um, it's been, we saw last week that it's been really filled with interesting imagery. Uh, Jesus speaks in apocalyptic language in this space, which we talked about last week too. Um, and so we, we've seen it's filled with a lot of images and metaphors and difficult things in this way. Um, and we'll see that again this week. But it says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Oof. That is a tough final line, isn't it? Now we saw last week, first of all, we have to realize here that, we're talk- that, that we have this kind of mini, mini parable in here as well. And so that, that's important. Uh, we saw last week that, that, that we have a lot of this imagery that kind of is hard to play with each other. So we do need to do something with this idea of this eternal fire prepared for the angels and, his, uh, and, the, and the devil. But we also need to realize that, that, that's, that, that some of the language is tricky too. So for instance, in this particular case, we talk about fires that are eternally burning. Other places in scripture des- describe hell as being completely dark. You realize we already have a contradiction, don't we? That if there's fires burning constantly, how is it completely dark? I suppose it's possible, and maybe that's exactly what they mean, or maybe it's supposed to express a different kind of idea. That maybe, that, like last week, maybe when we're looking at hell, it's less about exactly what it's supposed to look like and more about a concept behind it. We'll explore that this morning. 
And so a lot of people have written on this particular topic. And just like there's a spectrum of how it's portrayed in popular culture, there's also a spectrum on where it gets expressed inside the church. Uh, Maybe a few of you remember uh, a few years ago uh, when the world went nuts for this book. Remember this one? Um, If you're from Grand Rapids, it's probably not surprising to you. So Mars Hill is just down the street. Where are we? Just on this way. Um, and uh, and at, at, the, at, one, at this, the time this book was written, uh, the pastor of Mars Hill was a guy named Rob Bell, um, who was immensely popular in, in the country. He actually would do tours and fill places like the Van Andel um, and have people come out and see him in that way. And then he wrote the book Love Wins, um, which would fall more on, the, on one side of the discussion of, make, of exploring what hell might look like um, and all of those kinds of things, opening up the door pretty wide on what that looks like. Uh, and people had a really hard time with it, so much so that a guy named Francis Chan wrote onto the other side of the spectrum. He wrote a book in response to Love Wins called Erasing Hell, uh, which, which would take a more... Um, traditional, literal understanding of what hell is. And so in that space, you have this spectrum here too of what people are exploring hell on a, on a more metaphorical or me- more um, um, idea, kind of like it's more of an idea or a metaphor. Uh, and then you have people like Francis Chan who have it more as the literal understanding traditionally. Uh, and you have people who fall all the way in between. Um, I actually would recommend you reading both of those books uh, and wrestling with it yourself. Uh, where do you find yourself in that spectrum? My personal favorite on the topic, if you haven't ever read it, is the one in the middle there, um, which is called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's a difficult read if you're not familiar with that kind of language, um, but, it was, but it was immensely helpful uh, in exploring kind of what hell and heaven might look like. He, he says it's fiction, and it is. Uh, he makes some theological points, um, but it's not the same as either Love Wins or um, Erasing Hell, but it's an awesome read. So all three of those books I really highly recommend taking a look at them and wrestling with them in that space. <clears throat> if, so, but <clears throat> with, with that spectrum in mind, it's still, we still need to wrestle with the passage that we just read. What does Jesus mean when he talks about there being this place that that the curse will be sent to that's filled with eternal fire? I think the only way that we can start to get at that, though, is to understand the bigger picture of Scripture as a whole. See, it's easy to believe, especially if we pay attention to pop culture, that the Bible is primarily about heaven and hell, opposite places, betting for or uh, vying for our attention. That is this battle between the two that, that both of them are trying to pull you one way or another and, they, and one will win. Um, with how much we talk about heaven and hell in popular culture, you would assume that the Bible itself is constantly talking about that. But a quick read through scripture and you realize that's not the case. Do you know how many verses in the Bible in which heaven and hell are mentioned together there are? If you were to just look at verses in the Bible, how many times is heaven and hell mentioned in the same verse? Zero. Not one. It's not what the Bible is trying to talk about. Heaven shows up in Scripture? Of course it does. Hell also shows up in Scripture. They're certainly related to one another, but they're not, it's not this constant direct comparison between one or another. On the other hand, if you were to search for verses in which heaven and earth show up together you'd find 195 of them. Meaning the dominant story of the Bible is not about heaven and hell. Actually, hell is talked about pretty minimally. It's about heaven and earth and what that's supposed to look like. 
Actually, if you were to kind of write out the movement of Scripture through the whole thing, it would go something like this. God creates heaven and earth. Then we see heaven and earth torn up by sin. And then the Bible ends with heaven and earth being reconciled together. The progression inside of Scripture is not about these two places battling. It's about God coming into earth and trying to restore heaven into that space. Actually, I found this image to be really helpful. So the traditional understanding that many of us have had is, our, is on the left, my left, your left, this side over here, that there's earth and there's heaven and hell. One's up, one's down. If you ever wondered where the up and down come from, that comes from ancient mythology, which actually makes a ton of sense. If you're an ancient person, where does life come from? Up. The sun, rain, all of that comes from up. And if the sun's not there, if rain's not there, things die. And so they, the idea was then, life is found up. On the other side, when something dies, where does it go? Into the ground, right? It's a pretty easy understanding. So we thought, heaven's here, hell's here. The image we see in scripture, though, is more of the, the image on the left, where you have heaven separated from earth for now, hell actually existing on earth, currently, and eternity being hell heaven moving towards earth and hell being removed from it. I found that to be a really helpful image for us. The way the scripture talks about hell is not about these two places that are vying for our attention, but that hell is here now, and the goal is to move heaven towards earth as we move hell out. It's the movement of scripture. And so we have to deal then with how Scripture itself talks about hell. In Scripture, there are four words that are often translated hell. One in Hebrew and three in Greek. The first one, or the three words are on the next slide there. The sheol, which is the Hebrew word. Uh, Tartus, or Tartarus. Hades, and Gehenna. Those are the four words that are often translated as hell in Scripture. And I just want to briefly walk you through each of them. First, sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word that often gets translated hell. It used to actually, historically, until recently, was almost always translated as hell. But we've realized that it's, that's, pretty, that's a poor translation for Sheol in general. Uh, because in the Old Testament, everybody goes to Sheol. If you're an Israelite, you go there. If you're a Canaanite, you go there. Everybody goes there. And it's actually, in Hebrew scriptures, described more as kind of like a, a gray sleep. Right? It's kind of, kind of this kind of, this kind of intermediary, intermediary gray space. Um, and actually, newer translations, if you were to pick up a newer translation, they actually stop translating it hell and usually translate it as grave now. Instead of going to hell, you go to the grave. So, we, so, in, so really, there is no hell in the Old Testament. There's this place that people go, but even the understanding there is that that's also where Jesus goes to bring everybody back out after the resurrection. So it's not anything like our popular culture images of hell and probably isn't even helpful when we're thinking about Sheol. Sheol and hell are pretty disconnected from each other. The next word that we see translated in Scripture for, for hell is the word Tartarus. Um, may, any Greek mythology people out there? then you already know what Tartarus is, right? What's Tartarus? Four? Yes, it's exactly what it is. Prison place for the Titans. Be proud of that. That's awesome. Uh, actually, this is a picture of Tartarus here. Uh, an artist's rendition. That's one of the Titans kind of stuck in this place. So uh, in Greek mythology, Zeus, uh, the Zeus fights the Titans, beats them, and then imprisons them in Tartarus, right? 
And so we actually only see that in one space in Scripture, and Peter is the one who uses it. Uh, in 2 Peter 2.4, he says, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, or Tartarus, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And so what Peter is doing here is he's playing on the Greek mythology of what the afterlife is like. Um, he, he knows that most of the people he's dealing with, their understanding of the afterlife is Greek or Roman, which is similar. Uh, and so he's playing on that, right? We have Zeus, we have the Titans, we have this idea of this kind of burning place where the Titans are held, a place you definitely don't want to go. It would be terrifying. Which is also similar to the next word that we use for hell, which is the word Hades, Right? Now, probably more of, there's probably more of you uh, that, are rec- that recognize Hades than you do Tartarus, because that's also from Greek mythology. Actually, does anybody remember this guy? Yeah? I realized this week that I don't think my daughters have ever seen that movie. Have you? Have you? Oh, they've seen it a lot of times. I just haven't watched it with them, right? So, <laughs> so you've got Hades, right? This idea of the Greek afterlife uh, from Greek mythology. Uh, this, one, this word is actually used more often than the other two. Jesus uses Hades uh, for pretty regularly. He uses, it eight, uh, he uses it four times in the gospel. Uh, it's also used four times in the book of Revelation to kind of describe what this end time place will be like. Um, it's, it's pulled directly from Greek mythology to help people understand, to take the images that the people of Jesus' day already had about the afterlife uh, and apply them um, to what Jesus is teaching. But at the same time, Hades uh, is, is the place that everybody goes in Greek mythology. Uh, it's actually probably closer related to Sheol than it would be to our images of hell. This kind of intermediary, kind of boring, kind of nasty afterlife space. And so Jesus is playing off that popular idea. Now, all of those are interesting, and it also, hopefully, the reason I wanted to share them with you is that there's these, there, that a lot of the the a lot of the ways that, we use, that, uh, that the biblical writers or Jesus himself use words for hell is to give us images of other things rather than being descriptive about this other new or different thing. Uh, Jesus isn't particularly saying that hell is like Hades, or he's saying it's like Hades, not that it is Hades, right? Those kind of different things. But the, one, the word I want to focus on this morning, I think is the most helpful for us, is the final word that gets used for hell in Scripture. Uh, it's the word Gehenna which is used once by James in the book of James and 11 times by Jesus. Now, why is Gehenna so interesting? Well, I think it's because it's a real-life place. I've seen it. I was there last year. Uh, It's right outside of Jerusalem. Gehenna is here. So we have this picture. This is right outside of Jerusalem. On the left there, you can actually see the Temple Mount. It's a bad, not the great, greatest picture, but that's the temple there. You have the valley of Ben-Hanam, which uh, Ben-Hanam, is what, that's how, the, that's how um, Israelites would call it. They call it Ben-Hanam. Um, Greeks would call it Gen, the Valley of Hennam, but the va- but valley in Greek is Ga, so Gehenim, Gehenim. Uh, and then you see the Mount of Olives there on the right. So it's all right in this little space right here. It's a real-life place uh, that has existed a long time. Like I said, Gehenna is a Greek compound word, ge, meaning valley, and Hinnom, which is the name of that valley. So Gehenna, or now we pronounce it Gehenna uh, in English. Uh, you can actually see it today. It exists. Uh, it has actually been turned into a nice little park, actually. So if you were to go there, it's a little park. Um, we were told that's a place where uh, um, uh, uh, kids in Jerusalem go to make out, I guess. 
I don't know. I couldn't tell if he was serious or not. So our, our guide, Ronan, uh, was great. Uh, and sometimes he'd tell jokes. I think he was serious about this one, or he could have been completely messing with us. The park is real. The making out part, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Who knows? It is a nice little park. But this valley actually shows up a bunch of times in Scripture, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's a sacred location for the Canaanites. At the bottom of the valley, the Canaanites had built an altar known as Topeth, which was dedicated to their god, Molech. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know Molech shows up a number of different times throughout Scripture and often is strongly and adamantly condemned by God. This is a picture of Molech. Molech was a particularly terrible god in the Old Testament Canaanite region. What do you notice about this particular picture? There's a guy standing on a platform, and what is he offering up to Molech? A baby. Molech's primary worship style was child sacrifice. It was a nasty, nasty process, uh, but that's how you worshipped Molech, and particularly at this place of Topeth. So in the ancient world, at the body, bottom of the valley of Gehenna, you would, you, they, they're, they're, the Canaanites had made a sacred altar to sacrifice to Molech. Uh, throughout Israel's history, they actually end up struggling with Molech, even sometimes allowing his worship to creep, in, creep into Jerusalem itself. But during the reign of King Josiah, that all changes. And we see that in 2 Kings 2, 23-8, which is Josiah brought all the, peace, the priests from the towns of Judah and, and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the gateway at the entrance to the gate, uh, the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which was on the left of the city gate. Although the priests and the high priest did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. And this is the part that's interesting. He desecrated Topeth, that's the, that's the um, altar we just talked about, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, Gehenna, so that no one, could, no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter to the fires of Molech. He removed from the entrance of the te- removed from the entrance the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun, and they were in the court near the room with an official named Nathan Melech. So you actually have an official named after Melech, and then Josiah burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. So what we see here is that we see a shift in Israel that Molech worship had kind of pushed in on to, on, onto the gates of Jerusalem until Josiah decides to tear it all down. From that point on in Israelites' history, the valley uh, is viewed by Israel as being cursed. And so it, it becomes the town dump. In this particular time, you needed to put your trash somewhere. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's a very hilly place. And so you, you tended to need to find a valley because if you put it high, it'll fall down anyway. And so the valley of Gehenna then becomes the town dump. If for trash, so you threw off your extra trash. Now, that would have been very different than our trash today because we didn't have things like plastics or stuff like that. Most of it was organic. But you, you would throw that down there. Um, but even more important for us today, uh, it became the town dump for sacrificial carcasses. So we saw in the picture a little while ago how close the Valley of Gehenna is to the temple itself. And so Gehenna is located right out of there. And so in the temple, you'd sacrifice animals, and then you'd need to do something with the bones and the bodies, right? Especially if you have a lot of them. So where do they go? You can't just pile them up next to the altar. That would get pretty gross pretty fast. And so what they would do is they'd bring them out of the city and throw them down into the valley of Gehenna. Those bodies then would begin to rot, 
producing methane. Also, to get rid of trash, people would light their trash on fire. So you would have this, these fires that would begin to burn, and the methane would keep them stoked. Right? So, you had this, so inside of the Valley of Gehenna, you had trash on fire. You had decomposing bio bodies that kept those fires going. Also, what happens when you throw a bunch of carcasses into a pit in the middle of the wilderness? Animals show up, right? So the ones that aren't on fire are being fought over by things like wild dogs, right? They go down into this, this valley and they would fight over them, which if you've ever heard two dogs fighting, sounds a lot like weeping. Also, they gnash their teeth at each other. It's interesting, right? This weeping and gnashing of teeth in that particular space. More than that, when you sacrifice animals, or butcher them, or whatever you do, it produces a lot of blood, right? Now, I'm not a hunter, but Nick tells me there's a lot of blood when you butcher them. Right, Nick? A little bit? Yeah, just a little bit, right? And so that blood needs to go somewhere, too. Right? If you're, especially during the height of the sacrificial season, you, you have the temple there, you bring in all these animals, they're all being sacrificed, that produces a lot of blood, it all has to go somewhere. So we actually have found an ancient sewer system that would run from the altar in the temple out of the city of Jerusalem to where? Valley of Gehenna, right? So all of the blood from these sacrifices would run down into the valley, and actually they would say that at the height of the sacrificial season, it could get as high as your calves, So let me paint you the picture of the Valley of Gehenna. We have a valley that was used for child sacrifice, which would inevitably cause people to weep, so there's our weeping again. But, uh, but now it's filled with burning trash and animal carcasses, which attract wild animals who fight over those dead animals with weeping and gnashing of teeth, with a methane fire that's constantly burning or not going out, and during Passover, a river of blood at the bottom of it. And then, for good measure, what do bodies of decomposing animals attract? Flies. Does anybody know what Beelzebub means? It's Lord of the Flies, right? It's one of the names of the devil, and they call him the Lord of the Flies. You can start to get this image in your head, that Jesus is pointing to a real place that is a miserable place to be, that no one would want to be stuck in, Right? Maggots, blood, fire, dogs, no, uh, like, that sounds terrible. Which is the point. So why do I share that? One, to show us that when we talk about hell in the Bible, the language used tends to, the language used tends to be language within which the first hearers would understand, rather than being a description of what hell is actually, actually is metaphysically. Jesus is saying, or Peter is saying, that when you think of like what TARDIS is like, hell is kind of like that. It's kind of like Hades, that image you have in your mind. It would be kind of like living in the valley of Gehenna filled with dead bodies and blood and dogs and all of that gross stuff. What it's saying is similar to what we saw last week, that Jesus' primary concern is not that we understand the specific metaphysical parts of hell. It's a thing, absolutely. That's why he talks about it. But what is it exactly going to be like? I'm not sure. And I actually think we're not supposed to know exactly what it's supposed to be like. Because Jesus' point is just this, that it's awful. That it's the worst thing that you can think of. He tried to find an example of the place that everybody would universally reject as a place they want to be for a long time. Gehenna, or Tardis, or Hades. The point being a separation from God, which is what hell is. 
A separation from the life that God desires for you will be miserable beyond our expectations. And so I want to close then with that understanding with two things. I want to talk briefly about why hell exists because that's a question that comes up often and talk briefly about what that means for us today. At the very beginning of our message, we get... We get um, <clears throat> I didn't actually say this. I skipped this point, which makes this point really hard to make right now. What I meant to say at the beginning was that one of the ways that we understand Scripture in its overarching um, ways is that Jesus is a representative of who God is. We look at the life of Jesus to understand who God is and how that, what that means for us. So when we think about hell in the traditional way then, I don't know about you, but then it all of a sudden feels a little off-brand for Jesus. If we understand it as a torture chamber, as a place for punitive punishment in which God gets this kind of sadistic joy about making people hurt, that doesn't feel right for our image of who Jesus is, right? It doesn't match well, my perception of what Jesus is at all. So I'd like to suggest, what if hell is not that? Now hear me out on this one. I've already said it's bad and I do hold to that. But what if hell isn't something that God created to torture us? but a reality we experience and that we choose. What I mean is this. From the very moment of creation, God let us know that there is a best way to live. His desire was to be with us, to be close to us, to walk with us. We actually see it in the garden in which God walked with Adam and Eve daily, that the two of them get to talk in that particular way. That would have been what's best for us. We would have flourished in that space. It would have been amazing. God let us know that wandering from that path wouldn't be good. He says, if you eat of the tree, you'll die. You'll experience evil and death that you wouldn't have had to otherwise. And he wasn't lying. Humanity had a choice, and we chose to know evil, to be affected by it. And so now we need to choose between two paths. Right away back in Genesis 3, God, from the very moment of the fall, invites humanity into joining him in, the, in, his, in his working towards redemption, towards the restoration of Eden, which culminates in Revelation. He says, live this way, and you'll experience the abundant life that you would have had in Eden, or you at least get a little taste of it. You'll get a little taste of heaven on earth. Actually, in the Old Testament, I've said this a number of times, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus, God says to the Israelites, if you follow the law, these are the supernatural things that will happen to you. You're going to have rain and season. You're going to grow and multiply in number. You're going to never lose a war. Essentially, he says, I will recreate Eden in Israel if you follow me. Was what they were invited into. At the same time, he says, or you can choose the other path. The path in which you are the God of your own life. The original fall of humanity is that. We've said that a number of times here too. What the devil offers to Eve, he sa she says you, that God is holding out on you because you can be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation for Eve is that she can be like God. She can be the God of her own life. And so then post-fall, God lays out two paths. One in which you let him be God and you can recreate and experience Eden or this other path in which we are the gods of our own life and they say that will lead us to a kind of hellishness. In the same way that following God can give us these little tastes of heaven, the other side is true too. So why does hell exist? Well, it would be the final culmination of that idea. 
The new earth, eternity, is the elimination of sin from earth. We threw that graph up again. Can we throw that up again, Reese? That one, right? The removing of hell from earth. We just saw that the reason we failed in the first place is because we wanted to be God rather than allowing God to be God. Well, then one condition of the new earth then is that God needs to be God, not us. Fair? I think for many of us, when we think about what salvation means, we think about it believing in God, an intellectual assent to the fact that he exists. I don't think that's a helpful way to think about it at all. I don't think it's the way the Bible talks about it. It says even the demons can assent to that, but they shudder. What it means to follow God and what it means to accept his salvation is better expressed, I think, with the declaration that Christ is Lord. This idea that I will allow you to be the Lord of my life entirely. You can be God because I am not God. Right? That's the condition of heaven. That God says, I want you to be in this space, but then you're going to actually have to let me run the show this time. Literally every single aspect of it. We're actually slaves to Christ, the Bible says. We trust our master is good and powerful and that he has our best interests in mind. We have a good, good father, right? That's what this song's about. This idea that, that, that God is good and will lead us to that kind of life. What happens then is that we're left with a choice to either allow God to be God or then reject it again. C.S. Lewis says it this way. There are those who would rather be a master in hell than a servant in heaven. What if God still allows us to make that choice then? He warns us of the consequences of that choice. If you choose to be the God of your life, own life, things will get really messed up really, really fast. But he still allows it anyway. Lewis says it this way as well. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who says, say to God, thy will be done, and those, whom God, and, th- and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, or those who knock, it is opened. Hell is a separation from God. It's us acting as the gods of our own lives. Which then means that just, just like we can experience those little tastes of heaven, heavenly life here and now, the same is true on the other end of the spectrum. The more we walk in line with God, with God in the lead, the more the kingdom life we'll experience. We've seen that the whole way through the book of Matthew. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. You walk with me and we can experience that kingdom life. But the more we choose to walk our own way, the more we choose to be the gods of our own lives, the more we'll experience little tastes of hell. Romans says the wages of sin is death. Later, sure, but also right now. And we all kind of get that, don't we? We can see it on a grand scale if we look at the world as a whole. Right? Why do we fight wars? Because we want what other people have. Because we want power. Because we want to rule. Because we view ourselves as better than other people. Right now, in the world, there are between 50,000 and 100,000 women and children who are being forced into sexual slavery. It's because people are not seeing other people as people. They view themselves as more valuable than someone else. It's a God complex. When we view ourselves as God, when we want to be the God of our own lives, it taken to its end looks like that. 
looks like wars or the exploitation or manipulation of people. When we think we know best and we follow our own path, violence becomes normalized. In the last 314 days, there have been 589 mass shootings. We are not good at being God. We're just not. When we follow down our own paths, things get hellish quickly. But it's, it's more than even just that. As hellish as those experiences that are on a grand scale, they aren't only, hell doesn't only exist on the grand scale. We all have the roots of that in our own hearts. Lust, violence, hypocrisy, pride, selfishness. When Jesus is talking about hell throughout the Gospels, he's warning us of that in our own internal lives as well. Now first, he's far more often, and Lisa will talk about this next week when we talk about heaven too, the Bible is not primarily about running away from hell, not at all. Actually, hell is vastly under, like if you compare how often the Bible talks about heaven to hell, hell is far, far lower the Bible is primarily about running towards heaven, not running away from hell, coming towards that kind of kingdom life. But he warns, if you choose not to, which the choice is yours, things will get messy, worse than messy. The further we walk down the second path in our own life, the less and less of the kingdom we experience and the more and more we experience hell. If you've ever met an addict at the end of their rope, they live in a kind of hell on earth, don't they? If you ever met somebody who is overcome with anger or fury or rage or hatred towards someone, are they flourishing? No. They're miserable, right? It's like living in a valley filled with blood and fire and carcasses. In a world in which we get filled with pride, which the only person that matters is me, what we end up finding is ourselves is all alone and we're miserable. Jim Carrey once said, I wish everybody could come rich and famous and have all the money they ever wanted so they could know that it's nothing. It's empty, meaningless. When we chase our own things, when we run after, ourself, when we run after the things that we believe is best, when we are the gods of our own lives, the further we walk down that path, the more and more of hell we experience. And so when Jesus is talking about hell, that's the warning. That if you follow that path all the way to the end, there might be an eternity of that, which we, we don't want for anyone. But it's not just something we worry about later. It's something we need to take seriously now. That we need to take a look at our lives and say, what parts of my life am I not letting God be God? And what would it look like if I changed that? We call it Sin. Missing the mark that God has asked us for. What areas of, the, of our life, do my life have I let sin win? This, this idea that I am in charge and not God, where I have chosen the wrong path and I need to turn back towards it. As followers of Jesus, we need to take that seriously. We open by saying that there are two ways that we, we either get to this, this terrifying image of hell in which we just scare people with it. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to scare people into salvation. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. But at the same time, this kind of flippant caricature of sin or hell-ish things not being a big deal is also not what we should be doing. Jesus is very clear that it's something we need to take extremely seriously, that it's something that we need to care about and work out of our lives. 
but not be afraid of. Instead, use it to motivate us towards the heavenly kind of life we'll talk about next week. Because just a few minutes, we're going to take communion. And communion is a, this is a, for me, it's one of the perfect weeks to take communion. Because in Scripture, it said that while we were still sinners, while we were still experiencing these tastes of hell on earth, it says then Jesus came for us. What the Lord's Supper represents is the weight of all of that sin that we, that we have put on Jesus and him taking it for us, that his body is broken for us, him giving us this constant path to walk away from hell and towards heaven. So in just a few minutes, when I invite you to come forward, you'll, you'll, you'll take uh, some bread and you'll take some of the, the, the juice. And I'd really encourage you, before you take communion today, to first reflect on the areas of your life in which you've, let, which you've made yourself God. Maybe just pick one today, one area in which you've, you're going to decide to do things God's way, to let God be God in that particular case. And then realize that even if you, if you do it well, you might experience the flourishing kind of life that God has for you, but even when you fail, you're still covered by the body and blood of Christ. Because communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. The declaration that we need Christ in our lives. And it's a declaration that we need each other too. Because each of us has fallen short. We failed in one way or another. And communion is a reminder that failure is not what defines us in Christ. That we have all chosen to be gods of our own lives in one way or another. But communion is a reminder that Christ has defeated death. And because of that, sin is not our master. We have a chance to walk out into this other kind of life. Communion is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm the acceptance of Christ's gift in our lives. And so our table this morning is open to anyone who wants to accept the gift of Christ's love. I want to invite those of you who have chosen to follow Christ or make that choice for the first time today. If it's not you, that's fine. You can stay seated. Just reflect on maybe what you've heard. Because at the table there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another as you have <clears throat> forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now hear the words from Luke twenty two fourteen. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I will not eat this meal again until its meaning has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He said, take Take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. At the table, he took some bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, remember me. Likewise, he took the cup. So this wine is the symbol of the new covenant. My blood shed for you to cover your sins. When you drink it, remember me.